Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Judges. And if you don't know where Judges is, go to the front of your Bible and then just start turning toward the back. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. And then you're there. You're there at Judges. This morning, we're beginning a new series that looks at a period in Israel's history that that occurred about 3,000 years ago. It is one of the most gruesome, violent, wicked periods in Israel's history. If you were making a movie based upon these times, you would have to rate the movie R. If you were reading the headlines from the newspapers of those days, you would read things like this. Conquered king, tortured and maimed. Family feud, leaves 69 dead. Strong man has fleeing and loses his power. Or perhaps the worst of all, gang rape leads to death and dismemberment. It would be hard to find a period in human history that was any darker than this period. And the tragedy is, all of these things weren't done by the pagan nations. These things were done by God's people. When we come to the end of this book, the book of Judges, twice we read these words. And the people did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, there was no longer a clear standard of right and wrong. Whatever you believed, whatever you wanted to do, you did it. They had completely removed God's word and replaced it with their own version of the truth. But the question is, how did they get there? I mean, how did the Israelites, God's chosen people, a people set apart for God's very own purpose and love, how did they fall so far? And how did they fall so fast? Well, let's review for just a moment. When the nation of Israel was entering the promised land, God gave them some very clear instructions on what they were supposed to do when they entered into the promised land. In Deuteronomy 20, verse 16, God says this. Listen to what it says. In the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave alive any that breathes. Destroy them completely. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. And you will sin against the Lord your God. Now, when we hear that, we struggle understandably. I mean, how can a good and a loving God command that everyone be destroyed? Men, women, Boys and girls, everyone, everything. I mean, either God's word is incorrect or God is some kind of cruel, vindictive God. But the truth is, neither of those things are true. You see, the Bible makes it clear in Second Peter that, that God is not wanting anyone to perish. God wants everyone to come to repentance. We, we see this very clearly in the story of Rahab. And how Rahab was a pagan that lived in the city of Jericho that was bound for destruction. And yet Rahab, because of her faith in the God of Israel, was spared. And we need to understand today that it is God's desire to forgive and save anyone 
who will repent and turn to him. The truth is, God had been very patient with the Canaanites and the people that lived in the land, and yet they continued to do unspeakable evil. They had seen the power of God over and over again. They they had seen the power of God or they had heard of the power of God when, when God parted the Red Sea so that they could walk through on dry ground and, and then how God destroyed the armies of the Egyptians by causing the sea to fall on them. They had heard about the power of God that, that brought down the walls of Jericho. They had heard how, how God had provided for his people when they wandered in that wilderness for 40 years. They knew in their minds that the God of Israel was the almighty God, the all-powerful God. And yet, they refused to repent. They refused to turn to him and follow him. You, you know the Bible speaks about another time in history when, when that happens. It's toward the end of time and, and God is bringing his judgment on a sinful world. And in Revelation chapter 16, we, we read that, that plagues and calamities are coming upon the earth and, and the people of the earth know that these plagues and these calamities are God's judgment upon them. And the Bible says that instead of repenting and turning to God, the people curse God. They knew that this judgment was on them because of their sin. They knew that God was calling them to repent. And rather than repent and be saved, they cursed God. Understand, God isn't a cruel God. Never think that God is a harsh God. God isn't. In Numbers 14, it says the the Lord is slow to anger. He is abounding in love, forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he must not leave the guilty unpunished. You see, God must judge sin. He must punish sin. We see God's judgment on sinful man in Genesis 7 when he brought the flood. And yet, in the midst of God's judgment, Noah, a preacher of righteousness, preached for the years and years and years that the ark was being built for people to repent. We see God's judgment in, in Genesis 19 when God brought fire down to rain on Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet, even in the midst of God's judgment, we discover that if only 10 righteous people could be found in those cities, God would spare those cities. You see, we need to understand that God is a merciful God. God is a patient God, and, and yet at the same time, God is a holy God, and he must deal with sin. And the truth is, God was using the nation of Israel as the instrument of his judgment. Just like he used the flood as an instrument of judgment, just like he used the, the fire from heaven as an instrument of judgment, God was using the people of Israel as an instrument of judgment. Now, before we go any further, let me say we're living in a different day today. Since the coming of Jesus, we live in a day of grace. The Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus didn't come to bring judgment. Jesus came to offer mercy and grace and forgiveness to everyone. One day he will come back. And he will judge the world, 
But in our day, in our age, in this dispensation, we are to offer mercy and grace to all people. And so, if someone says to you they are an instrument of God's judgment, you need to understand that they are either insane, they are possessed, or they have been misled because God is not doing that today. And so as they entered the promised land, they were to completely destroy the people of the land and they were to completely destroy all of their idols. Now, as we read through the book of Joshua, which tells us about them entering the promised land, we discover that they were doing this. They were being very successful in taking over the land. But in in Joshua 13, we discover that Joshua is not an old man. And there is land that still hasn't been conquered. And so Joshua is preparing the people to continue and to finish the task. And in Joshua chapter 24, Joshua is standing before the entire nation and he issues them a challenge. Listen to what he says in verse 14 and following. He says, now fear the Lord... And serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And then it says this, the people answered. Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our forefathers out of Egypt from the land of slavery. And performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey among the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord Because he is our God. Joshua gave the people a choice. And the people chose to serve God. And then it says this. As the book of Joshua closes. In in verse 29 and following. It says, after these things. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And then it goes on to say this. Israel served the Lord. Throughout the lifetime of Joshua and all the elders who outlived him and who had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. So the book of Joshua comes to a close. And then the book of Judges begins. And it begins with these words. After the death of Joshua. Now you would think with the commitments that That God's people had made that everything would be great. That's what you would think. They would serve the Lord wholeheartedly, but that's not what happened. In chapter 2, we are told that, that the people of Israel did evil in God's sight. They abandoned the Lord and they worshiped other gods. After all God had done for them, in a matter of one or two generations... They had completely turned their back on God. So how did that happen? I mean, how did a people who had made a vow to follow the God with all of their heart, to serve Him completely and totally, how did they fall so far so fast? 
Well, we see that in the first two chapters. And listen, the thing we need to understand is the same thing that happened to them can happen to us. And let me go a step further. I believe it is happening to us. Let's review for just a moment some of our history. When the first pilgrims came to America on the Mayflower, they signed a document known as the Mayflower Compact. And in it, this is what it said. For the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. They said the reason that we have come to America is so that we may bring God's glory here and we may advance the Christian faith. On a cliff overlooking the spot where they landed, there is a statue commemorating their faith. And it's a statue of a man holding up an open Bible in one hand with an index finger on the other lifted toward heaven. It's obvious that our, our fathers who came to this nation came for one reason. For the advancement of God's glory and the Christian faith. Patrick Henry, who was known for saying, give me liberty or give me death, also said this. He said, this great nation was founded not by religionists, as some would have us believe, but by Christians. Not on religion, but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Quincy Adams said, from the time of the Declaration of Independence, the American people were bound by the laws of God and the laws of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, some would say, well, we're not a Christian nation. And I would agree, we're not a Christian nation anymore. But we were founded as a Christian nation. You see, we're not anymore. A nation that celebrates the freedom to murder babies and then sell their body parts on the open market is not a Christian nation. A nation that has redefined marriage, a, mar a, a definition that was given us at the beginning of time by God himself, is not a Christian nation. A nation that, that protects sinful practices while at the same time makes it a crime to peacefully resist is not a Christian nation. And listen, I believe a return to our Christian roots is the only hope that our nation has. So let's look. Just for a few minutes, let's look and see what was it that led these people who were wholeheartedly in love with the one true God to turn for Him, reject Him, and follow other gods in a matter of one or two generations. Well, here's the first thing. They failed to reach... The next generation. As we look at the first two chapters, we see that chapter 1 gives us a synopsis of, of the military campaigns of Israel as, as they were going through the promised land. But then as we look at chapter 2, we discover that, that God has given us a spiritual synopsis. The spiritual truth behind the story that we read in chapter 1. And in chapter 2, verse 6, we read some words, some of the same words that we read at the, at the end of the book of Joshua. Listen to what it says in Judges 2, verse 6 and following. It says, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they went to take possession of the land, each to his own inheritance. 
the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Now, the book of Joshua tells us that exact same thing. But then it goes on and it says this. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, in other words, after that generation that had seen, experienced firsthand the power of God, after they died, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now go back and and look at chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read this. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites? The Lord answered, Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands. When Joshua died, there were still men, good men, godly men, who knew the power of God, who knew firsthand the presence of God, and they were continuing to lead the people of Israel. And so what did they do? They immediately asked God, what do we need to do? And God said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to first send in the tribe, the tribe of Judah. And then from there you go. And the Bible tells us that the people did exactly what God told them to do. During that generation that had lived and seen the things of God, they followed the Lord. They sought His will. This was the generation that had experienced God's power firsthand. But then that generation died. And another generation came up. A generation that did not know the Lord or the things he had done for Israel. That word know is the Hebrew word yada. It's the same word that we find in in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1 where it says Adam knew yada, his wife, and she conceived. And, And that verse is speaking of that sexual relationship, that intimate relationship that a husband has with his wife. This passage in Judges isn't telling us that that these kids that, that grew up did not know the stories about God. That's not what it's saying. It's saying they did not know Him personally. They did not know Him intimately. They probably had a head knowledge but that head knowledge had, had never made its way to their hearts. Now, how did that happen? I mean, how did that happen? Well, here's what I believe. The first thing is, the parents turned the responsibility over to the priest. The parents turned the responsibility over to the priest. We're told in Deuteronomy chapter 20, I believe it is, that that every seven years on the Sabbath year, the priest was to gather all of the people together, and he would read to them the law, the Pentateuch. And the Bible says the reason that he would do this is because it would teach the people to fear God and follow him wholeheartedly. Now listen to me. By itself, there is no way that hearing the law once every seven years is going to penetrate a child's heart. Just as there is no way that bringing your child to church once a week or twice a week is going to penetrate 
a child's heart. You see, what we do on Sundays and Wednesdays will never take away what you do seven days a week, what you teach 24 hours a day. And so here the priests were teaching. They were probably doing their part, but obviously the people weren't doing their part. Because as we read in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, we discover what the people were to do. We are told that, that the parents were to teach their children and their children's children, their grandchildren, the truths about God. They were to teach them day in and day out. But not only were they to teach them, they were to model for them what it meant to be sold out to the one true God. And obviously, they didn't do this. And I must say that I don't think we're doing that today. When I was growing up, I lived in a different day and age. I'm not that old. I'm 55. But it was a different day and age. I I grew up watching TV shows like Gilligan's Island, Petticoat Junction, um, I Dream of Jeannie, all those kind of shows, Gunsmoke. Some of you grew up watching those shows. Our kids today are are growing up watching shows called Modern Family and many other things that are messing up their minds. When I was growing up and we played sports, we didn't even have practice on Wednesdays. You know why? At church on Wednesday night. And, And the church was strong enough to protect that. Now today, we not only have practice on Wednesday, we have practices on Sunday. And we have all of these sports leagues that that our kids are playing in that almost every weekend they're gone somewhere. And what are we teaching our children? We're teaching our children that, that this sport, whether it be soccer or baseball or basketball, is more important than worshiping the one true God. And if you think I'm wrong... Just look at how far we have fallen. You see, I believe the parents failed to teach. But we must also recognize that we have free will. And it could be that the parents teach, but the kids rejected. But here's what I believe. I don't think that many children would reject. If they see the truths modeled out and taught... In the lives of their parents. I believe for the most part God uses that in the lives of children. Now hear me. If you're like many of us today and you have a rebellious child. That doesn't mean you should feel guilty because there is free will involved. I'm just telling you that when we do what we're called to do. God it seems most oftentimes blesses that in the life of our children. I want you to write this down. The church is never more than one generation from extinction. Now, I know the church will prevail. I've read the book, the Bible, and I know that, you know, that that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. I know that. But that doesn't mean that hell will not prevail against the church in America. That doesn't mean that hell will not prevail against the church in your family. 
And so we need to understand that if we don't do our part, we're never more than one generation away. So they failed to reach the next generation. That takes us to the second thing. That led them to have a half-hearted commitment. Let me remind you what they were commanded to do. Numbers 33 says this. On the plains of Moab by the Jordan across, across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites, say to them, When you cross the Jordan into Canaan, drive out the inhabitants of the land before you. Destroy all their carved images and their cast idols and demolish all their high places. Take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given you the land to possess. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land, those who... You allow to remain will become barbs in your eyes, thorns in your side. They will give you trouble in the land where you live. Then I will do to you what I had planned to do to them. Now, they initially did what God told them to do. For those first 18 verses of Judges chapter 1, they were pretty much following the game plan. But then something happened in verse 19. Listen to what it says. The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had iron chariots. goes on to say the Benjamites, however, failed to dislodge the Jebusites. And then it says Manasseh did not drive out the people of Bethshan or Tamak or Dor or Ibian or Megiddo and their surrounding settlements, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that land. Then it goes on to say, nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Neither did Zebulun drive out the Canaanites living in Ketron or Nahal, who remained among them, but they did subject them to forced labor. The early victories turned into a series of failures. We read the phrase, they were unable to drive them out. They were unable to dislodge them. They failed to drive them out completely. Now, to understand, the Israelites were outmanned. The Israelites were out-equipped. I mean, when they fought against the people of the plains, the people of the plains had iron chariots. All the Israelites had were foot soldiers. One iron chariot, the tank of its day, could mow through hundreds of foot soldiers. So, I mean, it was tough. There were people in the hills that, that just didn't want to be dislodged. There were, there were enemies that were determined not to give up. And it was difficult. But what you need to understand is God had commanded them to do this. Now, some of you are probably saying, but wait a minute, Rocky. They did their best. They were just unable. But chapter 2 gives us God's view. Chapter 2 tells us they didn't do their best. It's not that they couldn't dislodge. It's that they wouldn't dislodge. They were unwilling to trust God. Listen, our victory is never about our strength. It's always about our faith in God's strength. Was it... Was it the army of Israel that knocked down the walls of Jericho? Was it the people of Israel that, that caused the, the water to descend upon the, the armies of Egypt? You see, it's never about what we can do. It's about what God can do in us 
and through us and for us. The truth of the matter is, they just didn't trust God. And my question is, how many times do we say we can't when God is looking at us and He's saying, no, it's that you won't. We do it in, in the area of relationships. God has some clear standards about marriage and what He expects us to do and our marriage gets tough. Our husband or our wife gets difficult and we sit back and we say, I can't do this anymore. God wants me to be happy and we leave our spouse. I, I just can't do it. And God says, no, you won't do it. We're single and, and we want to get married. We've tried Match.com. And we've even tried Christian Mingle. And we can't find anybody that's good, that's a Christian, that has our same values. So we meet somebody that's not a Christian and, and they, they make us feel good about ourselves. And, and we know what God's Word says. Do not be unequally yoked. We know what God said, but we say, but God, I just can't live alone, God says, it's not a matter of what you can't do. It's a matter of what you won't do. You won't trust me. We do it with our finances. I mean, over and over and over again, we, we come to the end of the month and we have more month than we have money. And we know what God's word says about our finances, that we are to put God first. We're to give him our first and our best. We know that. And yet we sit back and say, if I do that, I can't pay my bills. And God says, it's not that you can't. It's that you won't. So understand, half-hearted commitment is always the result of a lack of faith and trust in God. And here's the key. Write this down. If we've never experienced God's power personally, we will never obey Him radically. Did you hear me? If I'm, if I'm living on my parents' faith, if I'm living on a teacher's faith, if I'm living on a friend's faith, and I haven't experienced the power of God for myself, then when God calls me to radical obedience, I'm not going to do it because I can't trust Him. I mean, let me ask you a question. Because this doesn't make sense to me. There are some of you here today who are trusting God with your eternal salvation. And yet, you're not trusting Him with your everyday life. And I don't know how that can be. You're trusting God to deliver you for eternity when you won't trust Him to meet your needs in the temporary, the temporal, half-hearted commitment. Well... They didn't reach the next generation. They had a half-hearted commitment which led them to fellowship with the world. Notice what it says in chapter 1, verses 31 and following. Nor did Asher drive out those living in Acho or Sidon. And because of this, I want you to listen to what it says. The people of Asher lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Neither did Naphtali drive out those living in Beth Shemesh or Bethanath. But the Naphtalites, too, lived among the Canaanite inhabitants of the land. Before, when they had a half-hearted commitment, 
It wasn't that they were living with them. They were still separated. They were still at war. But they just said, it's too tough. We can't do it. But then what happened is they said, let's sign peace treaties. Let's sign a peace accord. And and you can live here and we can live here and we can all live here together. You see, their compromise led them to get so comfortable with the people that they were to remove from the land. And they got so accustomed to the practices of the people of the land that they didn't even see their practices as sinful anymore. Some of you have come to that point. You struggle now with a clear biblical standard of right and wrong. And let me tell you why. It's not because God's word has changed. It hasn't. It's because you have been Canaanized. You have moved in among the people of the world. And now you believe just like they believe. There's an old poem that goes like this. Vice is a monster of of such frightful means to be hated, it needs but be seen. Seen too often, familiar with its face, you first endure, then you pity, then you embrace. That's what happens to many of us. We have been inundated through the media and through politics and through education with this worldview that is diametrically opposed to the Word of God. And all of a sudden, we begin to buy into it and believe it and accept it. And before long, we find ourselves embracing it. And here's what it says in the New Testament. James chapter 4, it says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now listen. There's a difference between being a friend of sinners and being a friend of the world. Jesus was a friend to sinners. That's totally different than being a friend of the world, the practices, the standards, the beliefs of this world. When we get too cozy with the world, we will find ourselves being taken over by the world. They failed to reach the next generation. That led them to have a half-hearted commitment. That led to them fellowshipping with the world. And, and they were just a step away from worshiping other gods. Listen to what it says in chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook him and served Baal and the Asterisks. Now, some of you will think about America, and you'll think, that's what we're doing when we're allowing Islam in. But listen, Islam and the God of Islam isn't our problem. It's a false God. It's a false religion. But that's not our problem. Our problem are all the other gods of America. The God of material prosperity. The God of sensual pleasure. The God of worldly power. 
And we could go on and on and on. And we have bowed down and we've begun to worship the gods of this world. Then you say, how do you know if you're worshiping the gods of this world? Write this down. The way you live will reveal the God you serve. The way you live will reveal the God you serve. You can make all kinds of claims about following the one true God. You can call yourself a Christian, but the way you live will really show the God or the gods that you serve. So here they were. In one or two generations, they, they went from being a people who wholeheartedly served the Lord to worshiping and serving false gods. How? Well, they failed to reach the next generation. They had a half-hearted commitment, a fellowship with the world that in turn led them to bow down at the altars of the world. And because of that, listen, they experienced God's judgment. I want to read this to you, and we're going to have to close rather quickly here, but I want to read this. Verse 14 and following says, In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who would save them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned away um, from the way in which their fathers had walked, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers, following other gods and serving, worship and, serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant that I laid down for their forefathers and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he had died. And I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as their forefathers did. The Lord had allowed these nations to remain. He did not drive them out at once by giving them into the hands of Joshua. Now notice this progression. God's judgment began with his anger. Twice here we read of God's anger. His anger and then his hot anger. In our translation it says very anger, angry. But it says his hot anger. God was angry at them. Now, some of you have a problem with that. You want this lovey-dovey God who doesn't get angry. But let me tell you, a God that can't get angry is a God that can't love. Do you hear me? A God that can't get angry is a God that can't love. God gets angry when those he loves refuse to love him. Our God, the Bible says, is a jealous God. And he becomes jealous when we give our affections to other gods. You say, well, we shouldn't be jealous. Well, God's a jealous God. And 
And I think if God is a jealous God, then there certainly is a righteous jealousy. Amen? Let me ask you men something. I mean, if someone came up to you while you and your wife were walking through the mall and he came up to her and grabbed her shoulders, looked deep in her eyes and planted a, an intimate kiss on her, what would you do? I'm telling you, you don't want to see what I would do. You'd be saying our pastor got arrested. But then I hope you would say, well, the guy deserved it. You see, I'm jealous for those I love. I'm jealous for their love. I'm jealous for the best for them. And God is jealous and he gets angry when those he loves serve other gods. But notice, his anger led him to compassion, pity. His anger didn't cause him to wipe them out. His anger caused him to feel sorry for them. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You have people that you know and love. They're dear to you. And they've made decisions that have brought shame and hurt and heartache to their lives. And if you love them, you don't sit back and go, well, they deserved it. They may have deserved it and you may know they deserved it. But, but that's not how you respond You respond with a broken heart because you love them. And you still want the best for them, even when they're making the wrong decisions. So the Bible says that God raised up judges, heroes, deliverers, who would deliver them. But even these judges, as we are going to read through this book and study, these judges were flawed. And and these judges weren't able to save completely. And here's why. You see, we don't need a deliverer who has the same problems that we have. We need a deliverer who has overcome our problems. And my problem, the two problems that I face are sin and death. And I don't need a deliverer. I don't need a savior who is sinful. I don't need a Savior who is still in the grave. I need a Savior who has defeated sin for me and who has defeated death for me. And there's only one, and His name is Jesus. And when we put our hope in deliverers or Saviors who are flawed like us, we will never be delivered. True story. Out of California. There was a grandmother who was washing dishes and and she looked out her window to her backyard and and to her horror, she saw her two-year-old granddaughter lying face down in their pool. She ran outside and jumped in the pool to save her granddaughter. Two hours later, the paramedics were, were pulling both of their bodies out of the pool because the grandmother with with all of her desire to save her granddaughter she couldn't swim and when she jumped in to save her granddaughter she was in over her head and she died you see we need a savior a deliverer a hero that is greater than gideon 
or Deborah and Barak or Gideon or Samson or Jephthah or any of the other 13 that we read about in this book. We need a Savior who can truly save. And his name's Jesus. And so if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior, that's your first need. Yes, we need to teach the next generation. Yes, we need to have a wholehearted commitment. Yes, we need to separate ourselves from the practices of the world. Yes, we need to guard ourselves so that we don't get called up worshiping the gods of this world. But more than any of that, we need a Savior because until we have a Savior who can deliver us from sin and death, all of those things are going to be impossible. So what about it? Have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? I want you to bow your head with me and close your eyes. And with your head bowed and with your eyes closed, I want to lead us in a prayer. And as we pray, if you're here and you've never given your heart and life to Jesus, you've never surrendered all to Him and trusted Him to save you and set you free, I want to encourage you to do that today. Pray this prayer right now with all your heart. Dear God, I come to you today acknowledging my sin. Forgive me. I don't want to live under its control anymore. I need you to save me, to set me free. I know you died on the cross. I know you rose from the grave so that I could be set free from the power of sin and death. Right now, I'm trusting you. Come into my life. Take control. Do in me what I could never do on my own, I pray. Amen.